You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 13 of Ask Concussion Doc. I am your host, Dr. Cameron Marshall. We have, as always, three questions to answer today. Uh, the first one's going to talk about initial consultation and when that should happen. The second one is going to be talking about concussion recovery and some of the elements around that. And then we're going to talk a little bit about concussion prevention towards the end. So to get right into it, the first question comes from Instagram by Hairline Fracture. Uh, very interesting IG handle. I like it. So the initial consult should happen within how many minutes or hours after the uh, initial injury? And this was in response to some trivia we had on ruling out red flags following concussion. So the initial assessment, obviously, right away, immediately, if you are field side, uh, can be very important because some of the signs of concussion are very short in duration. So there aren't many objective signs of concussion, things like loss of consciousness, balance impairments, confusion, blank or vacant stare. Those types of things are the few objective signs that we have. And so that if you are on the sidelines and you're able to pick that out, uh, that can be extremely important information. Now, most of us on the clinical side are in clinic and not necessarily pitch side with athletes. In that regard, again, it comes down to the sooner the better, and it's not necessarily just ruling out red flags, which is extremely important in the initial few um, hours after injury, but it's also the research shows that seeing somebody with training and expertise in concussion that can give you appropriate guidance and recommendations in the early stages of the injury can be extremely effective for limiting the recovery time. So getting in to see somebody right away is gonna help you have a better recovery. And obviously again, getting back into the red flag side of things, being able to rule out the potential for more serious injury is also very important. The problem is something like a bleed or something like that in the brain may take hours to manifest. So if you see the person too soon, things may get worse over time. So I will, I will answer it this way. Seeing them sooner is always better than seeing them later, but I would also have a list of what those red flag conditions are to be able to hand to a patient to say, if you are going to be going home, here's the things we want you looking out for. And I would make sure that that patient is in the care of a responsible adult. Even if the patient is an adult themselves, make sure you're leaving them with another responsible adult they can monitor for any signs of worsening condition or deterioration. Signs that could indicate a brain bleed that you might not pick up right away, but as it progresses over time, can be picked up by these red flag symptoms. So certain red flags are if they still have a low Glasgow coma scale within two hours or two hours or more after the injury, that's significant. If they vomit, if there's any episodes of vomiting, that would be significant for a red flag. Um, if there's still altered level of consciousness, which kind of goes with the Glasgow coma scale stuff, if they have any signs of skull fracture, such as uh, bilateral um, 
bruising around their eyes or of the mastoid process, which is called a battle sign. Uh, so there's a number of these red flag scenarios that you should be watching out for. And we have a list that we just give to parents to say, right now everything seems fine. They're neurologically intact. Here's what we want you doing over the first few days. Now, um, here is a list of things. If any of this stuff starts happening, make sure you go to the hospital right away. That's kind of the initial uh, gist of that question is the sooner the better, but make sure you're also monitoring for 24 to 48 hours after for any emergence of red flags. Have those red flags in mind all the time and give that list to a, to a parent or um, uh, a responsible adult who's going to be with that athlete um, as, they, as they kind of go through that first few days. Next question, uh, this one was emailed to us. How do we define recovery? Is it a complete absence of symptoms? For how long? Then we get into talking about multiple concussions and can multiple concussions prolong recovery? And then how does that factor into our return to play decisions? So recovery from a clinical standpoint is different from recovery from a physiologic standpoint. And this was highlighted in the most recent international consensus statement that came out of Berlin uh, in 2017. The physiologic time for recovery is when your brain actually recovers. The clinical time of recovery means when your symptoms go away. And unfortunately, those two things don't coincide. That's what makes concussion extremely difficult to manage, particularly when you're talking about athletes. Because a lot of healthcare professionals don't have a lot of training when it comes to concussions. And so they consider concussion like any other injury, and they say, when your symptoms go away, well, I'll clear you to go back and return to play. The problem is when the symptoms go away, if the brain is still under that recovery and in that vulnerable state, any additional impact can cause another concussion with less force. And that second concussion can lead to an additive or cumulative effect and prolonged recovery, and in some cases, fatalities. So recovery from concussion from a physiologic standpoint is the most important component. Recovery from a clinical standpoint is great because your symptoms are gone, but it doesn't mean anything to me in terms of reducing your vulnerability to additional trauma. So recovery, I would say, is not the complete absence of symptoms, uh, especially when you're returning to something high risk, like let's say you're a hockey player, or a football player, or a soccer player, you're gonna go back and do something that puts you at risk. I don't care about your symptoms going away. I wanna make sure you're recovered from a physiologic standpoint, and that's a little bit harder of a task. The way that we currently have to do that and the best way that we've found to be able to do that is through baseline testing. So preseason testing of athletes coming into a clinic that would go through balance, reaction time, memory, concentration, ocular motor screening, and all these functional and cognitive tests before they're injured. So that way we have a good idea or representation of what that individual is like in a healthy state. Then in the event that an injury occurs, we can use that information. So after all of the symptoms go away, we would then say, okay, I know your symptoms are gone, so clinically you're recovered, but let's check out functionally how you're doing. Well, now we can test them, and we know what they were like before. So if we can see balance impairments, vision impairments, 
uh, reaction time impairments, anything that would indicate that there's some incomplete recovery, we would then hold that athlete back and not allow them to put themselves at risk. The problem is those that are doing baseline testing are simply relying on a computerized test, which the research has shown has very poor test retest reliability. And so unfortunately that doesn't give us enough information. Now, the proper way to do this is to use a battery of tests so that we're testing multi a multitude of functions so that if one test shows recovery, an another test may pick up some more subtle findings in a different region. So somebody's vision may be recovered, but their balance may still be impaired. So you have to test all of those facets. That's the most appropriate way to do this so that when athletes go back to play, we're not putting them at risk for that secondary injury. Now there was a personal question in here. This person had two concussions back to back. They were spaced out by 64 days apart. Could those two things be related? Uh, the answer is potentially. However, the that recovery period in terms of that low energy state, that physiologic recovery, in human studies have found that that recovery is about 30 to 45 days. So 64 is a little bit outside of that physiologic recovery. However, because there's a lot of stuff we don't know, potentially those two injuries could have been related and could have created that cumulative effect. But because 64 is quite far apart, my, my bet would be that there's probably limited, limited effect of that, but you never know. So the answer is yes, the period of vulnerability does extend beyond the symptom recovery. The best way to return athletes back to high-risk sport is to have a comprehensive battery of baseline test results done prior to each sporting season. This has to be done on a yearly basis because people are getting bigger, faster, stronger, smarter, and so we have to make sure we're keeping up to date with those changes so that up-to-date information uh, is the best, the best way to prevent these long-term effects. All questions on that? Nothing. Okay. Last question is from Cesar uh, Instagram. So what's the best thing to do to prevent a concussion? Well, since sports are the highest cause of concussion, I would say that you could not play sports if that's what you're trying to do is prevent concussions. Um, but in all honesty, the research on this has found that the best way to prevent uh, sports or reduce the incidence of concussion in sports, I should say, is to reduce contact. So a few years ago in Canada, some researchers in Calgary um, took out contact in uh, peewee hockey. So that's 11 and 12 year olds, I believe. And they, they limited it now and they moved the, the age when contact is initiated up to 13 and 14 year olds. And what they found was, uh, I think there was a 30% reduction in concussion incidents. So, limiting the amount of contact, and I know a lot of football programs are going this way in the United States where they're limiting full contact practices and, and hoping to reduce the number of concussions. And according to the evidence, that is the best way to prevent concussions, is limiting contact. Now, that being said, a lot of sports that are considered non-contact, like soccer for example, has a high, high rate of concussion. There was just a story uh, yesterday on CTV, Atlantic News, talking about how um, girls' soccer is one of the highest concussion sports there is. And it's not from heading the ball, it's from player-to-player -player contact. Because even in a non-contact environment, when you get a bunch of people running around a field, at some point, they're bound to collide with one another. And that actually accounts for about 75% of all the concussions that happen 
in soccer. So even sports that are considered non-contact still have a high incidence of concussion just by people running into each other. Protective equipment doesn't work. Helmets do not prevent concussions. Helmets are designed to prevent skull fractures and lacerations, not concussions, because no matter what you wrap the head in, if the head gets whipped back and forth, the brain is moving inside that skull. So you could create the most you know, amazing helmet in the world, but that brain is gonna move back and forth inside that skull when impact occurs, and that's how concussion happens. So that's not gonna work. Same goes for mouth guards, right? Put a mouth guard in, your brain is still gonna move back and forth within the skull if there's any type of impact that happens. So mouth guards don't prevent concussions. Helmets don't prevent concussions, at least as far as we know. Maybe there's some fancy helmet that will be invented that can uh, in the future, but right now, you don't have it. The best thing, aside from limiting contact, is actually improved game awareness. So there's this big idea that one of the reasons why women get more concussions than men is maybe due to strength of the neck. So men having stronger necks, potentially reducing the incidence of concussion because if they can keep their neck strong and stiff, when an impact occurs, there isn't as much whipping of the head, not as much brain rattling back and forth. So the issue though, and this is where neck strength falls short, is that just because you have a strong neck, it doesn't help you unless that neck is actively contracted and braced ready for impact. You don't think NFL players have super strong necks? They all have super strong necks, yet concussions are on an increasing level within the NFL. So it's not neck strength, it's more game awareness. Do you know the hit is coming? Can you anticipate the hit is coming? And if so, then the strength of your neck matters. How quickly can you contract those muscles and brace for impact and get those muscles contracted so that when you do get hit, you now have a nice stiff neck. So it's not neck strength, it's neck stiffness, which is a byproduct of both strength, but also game awareness. It takes you about half a second to contract the muscles in your neck. The peak velocity or peak impact velocity when concussion occurs is in the first six to 20 milliseconds. Six to 20 milliseconds. So unless you know that hit is coming at least half a second in advance, you don't stand a chance. So, eliminating contact in youth sports, increasing and improving game awareness, keeping your head on a swivel, knowing when hits are gonna happen, and bracing and anticipating are the best ways to prevent a concussion from occurring. The best way, though, to prevent the secondary concussions, which are really the big problem with concussions, is by making sure you have a really good quality baseline test before the season begins so that when you're going back to play, we can compare you to your pre-injury status and make safer decisions at the back end. Question, uh, just to reiterate what that was, using accelerometers and mouth guards to detect the amount of acceleration going through the head uh, in order to potentially flag a potential concussion. I think that is great. I think that is where we are going to uh, in the future. The problem with that right now is that we don't necessarily know the full range of concussion spectrum. At what g-forces or what uh, angular acceleration forces do concussions occur? We have a loose idea on g-forces that it's anywhere between 70 and 120 g's. And with rotational, it's anywhere over 5,500 rads per second 
uh, squared of rotational acceleration. Now, to get that into an, to accelerometers within mouthguards, and there are technologies that do this, that's one thing. But now, what happens if you have an individual who maybe their concussion, um, um, their concussion, I guess, susceptibility level is less than 70 Gs. Maybe they get concussed at 50 Gs. But now you have this mouth guard set up for this range, and now you get a concussion that happens at 50 Gs. The kid comes off the field complaining of symptoms, saying, yeah, I feel dizzy, I have a headache. And the coach says, well, your mouth guard didn't go off, the sensor didn't go off, you're fine, get back out there. So I think we still have a lot of work to do in actually using this, this technology for like a case-by-case case basis on like actually implementing it you know, for market. I think that it's still in the phase of like research at this point. Um, our goal with our program is actually looking for this type of technology and pairing it with our technology. So if you are a company like this, contact us. Um, because what we, what we want to get to is actually looking at the range of concussion for an individual. So you let the mouth guard pick up information as it goes, and then you start establishing what the range of concussion is for a specific individual. So now you have a better reading of what is concussion for that person or what is not. So right now the range I think is too broad uh, to be used kind of in, in market because what's going to happen is you're going to be pulling kids off the field that don't have concussions, which I'm not as concerned about, but then you're also going to be pull, keeping kids on the field just because their sensor didn't go off, and that's a more dangerous scenario. So uh, I think the idea is fantastic. I think that there's a lot of work to do in flushing out the research, uh, but yeah, that's my, that's my answer on that. Uh, thanks everyone for tuning in. Again, you can find us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Each week, if you have any questions you'd like answered, make sure you send them in to us. Uh, you can message me at ConcussionDoc or at Complete Concussions on Instagram or on our Facebook channels, or you can send it to info at completeconcussions.com. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.